Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with P.K. Adams about The Greenest Branch, the first of two novels she has written about Hildegard of Bingen. Hildegard was long one of the forgotten women of history. A 12th-century mystic and healer, the abbess of a little-known German convent, Hildegard was one of Europe's first recognized female physicians. Although learned in the scientific medicine of the day, based on the surviving works of certain doctors from classical Greece, Hildegard developed her own theory of herbal medicine based on practical experience and experimentation. She was also a dedicated nun, trained as an anchoress. But when we meet her in P.K. Adams' novel, all these achievements lie in the future. Nermesheim, Rhineland, September 1115. The night I learned that I would be leaving my family home, the sounds of talk and laughter took a long time to die down. Finally, a growing chorus of snores from the hall told me that the guests from Spanheim were asleep. But there was a murmur of voices close by, and a faint light was coming from behind the partition that separated my parents' bedchamber from ours. Despite the late hour and the warmth of the bed I shared with my two sisters and a brother, curiosity got the best of me and I slipped out of it stepping silently across the rush-covered floor. I pulled my nightgown closer about me, for the autumn night was chilly, and put my eye to a chink through which the light was seeping. On the other side, the hearth was burning low, the reflection of its flames dancing sluggishly on the walls. My parents, Mechthild and Hiddelbert, sat facing each other across it. Their voices were low too, but they came clear and distinct through the crack in the wood. She is still a child, husband, only ten winters old. My mother's voice was sad. Almost eleven, my father countered. With sharp strokes, my mother pulled a comb through the long strands of her graying hair. Normally, during her nightly combing ritual, those strokes were slow and deliberate. After a lengthy silence, my father spoke again. Oblates enter monasteries at all ages. Some spend years there before they are old enough to begin their novitiate. You know as well as I do that it is not a common practice. The Count's offer to recommend Hildegard to his daughter's convent is not to be passed over lightly. And now, please join me in welcoming P.K. Adams. Hi, P.K. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, Carolyn. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got started as a writer. Is The Greenest Branch your first novel? And if not, what came before? Um, I have a degree in European studies, um, and I first started writing uh, creatively about um, seven years ago. Um, it started with a, a few uh, short stories that were pretty pretty bad, and uh, I quickly shelved those um, and realized that it's the, the long-form prose that works better for me. So... Um, so that first experiment with long form became the first draft of the greenest branch. Uh, it then went through two different um, rewrites, two different iterations, uh, before it was published um, last June. So 
um, it's my yeah, it's my first novel length work. And what made you decide to write a novel about Hildegard of Bingen? Um, I first um, met Hildegard in a, a history of music class in college, where I learned that she was uh, the the first and for many centuries really the only uh, female composer, which which I found very impressive. Um, so I started reading about her, and I realized that um, she was, you know, so much more than that. She was um, a writer, a philosopher, theologian, and of course, a physician. Um, and I was I was completely uh, fascinated by how a woman in medieval times, uh, you know, times when women uh, had no access to education unless they were high-born, uh, was able to. Um, achieve so much and, and earn so much recognition, uh, not least from, from um, the men who ruled the world, uh, the, the church and, and secular authorities. Um, so, um, I mean, the, the fact that she was allowed to speak and, and, uh, and circulate her writings in that era was uh, nothing short of uh, extraordinary. Um, but, but that said, she's not a household name outside of Germany. She's very well known over there, but, but not really um, in the United States or much of, of, of the rest of Europe. So I wanted to bring uh, the history of, of, of this woman to uh, wider English-speaking audiences because I think that she's, uh, she's uh, truly inspirational. So she's very much the center of this novel. And as we already know, she's still 10 years old at the beginning of the book. Um, what can you tell us about her background and why her family plans to send her to a convent? Hildegard was uh, born to a minor noble family in the final years of the um, 11th century, um, and she was the 10th child of her parents. Um, and so as such, she was uh, destined for the church um, in, in accordance with a tradition known as the tithe. Um, in the early 12th century, uh, the minimum age of entry to a convent or, or a monastery was um, 10 years old. So when Hildegard reaches that age, her parents uh, take her to the Abbey of Saint Isibod uh, in the in the Rhineland uh, to become be, to become an oblate. Uh, that's a that's a term that's derived from the Latin word for offer. Um, so she literally becomes a gift to the church. Um, now I, I want to clarify that um, the exact age of Hildegard's entry to Saint Isibod is not actually known. Uh, sources, uh, historical sources differ on that. Biographies differ on that. Some, some uh, suggest it may have been as early as eight years old, which is not very likely given the, the uh, church regulations at the time. Um, some suggest it may have been 13, even as late as 14 years old. But what is certain is that she was still a child. So um, I had to make a choice in my book, um, and um, when the, the story begins, um, she's just about to turn 11 years old. So what is she expecting from the convent before she reaches it? What does she look forward to? Is there anything that she dreads? Well, Hildegard is a very um, intelligent, curious, uh, precocious uh, child, um, and she wants to, to study uh, above anything else. She's not interested in the, the pastimes that occupy her um, sisters, like embroidery and, and gossip. Um, and, and during that time, um, the educational system, such as it was, um, centered around uh, monasteries, which ran schools. Um, and to, to those monastic schools, uh, nobility and, and wealthy 
merchants would um, send their children to learn to read, write, and, and count. Um, and Hildegard's older brothers uh, had gone through the, that monastic school system, so Hildegard thinks that she will be able to follow in their footsteps um, and become a scholar as well as a nun. Um, so that's, that's what she's looking forward to when she arrives at St. Isabod. Even before she gets to the convent, uh, she encounters Griselda, who would like to be a nun but can't. So why is that, and what does it tell us about medieval monasteries, or at least medieval convents? Griselda is uh, the daughter of an innkeeper um, that Hildegard encounters on on her journey to St. Dizibod. Um, um, she's about the same age as Hildegard, and she has a religious vocation. However, her family is poor, and um, she cannot afford a, a dowry, a monastic dowry that would allow her to enter a convent. So, um, for Hildegard, it, it is an early lesson in social um, inequalities and injustices, but more broadly, it, it's really a, a commentary on the elitist nature of, of medieval monasticism, uh, where <clears throat> houses were often founded by wealthy patrons, uh, typically um, uh, queens or, or princesses, and um, you know those those foundations um, because of their 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 patrons' uh, family connections uh, often also became quite powerful politically, and so to be able to run those those institutions, they require required a lot of money. And that money came from patronage and from dowries or endowments brought in by novices. So it was much easier for a wealthy person to uh, to take the vows than it was for someone from a poorer background. Uh, it's something that we you know that we don't associate with modern monasticism or modern church, right? When when you know people who become priests or monks today typically do that because of they have a religious vocation. But in the Middle Ages, that was uh, more often than not, probably not the case. Right. Well, I mean, if they're giving away every tenth child, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> it worked for Hildegard, but not always, one would think. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it was very interesting how, how just, I mean, just the study of monasticism, you know, and the research that I did for this book was quite fascinating because uh, abbeys and, and monasteries were really ways, you know, places to stow away uh, wealthy or superfluous sons and daughters of wealthy families, you know, those younger children who couldn't count on much in, in the way of uh, land inheritance to manage or to, to, to have as a dowry to make a good marriage. So with these, you know, much, much diminished dowries, then these sons and daughters were shipped to, to, to monasteries and abbeys to become monastics. So the, the kind of the social and and economic profile of, of monks and nuns in the Middle Ages was very much aristocratic. Um, you know, that, that, that's what it was. It was, it was a very, very elitist um, institution or, or, you know, network of institutions. It was also something of a cheap solution for the families, I think. I mean, you had to give a dowry, but I think the dowry for a, a nun was not as large as the dowry for a bride, right? Exactly. So, so you know, if you were if you were um, born to a, a noble family, you, you did not want to marry below your station. And and in order to marry as a woman, you know, at your station or above, you had to bring in a lot of money, a lot of property, a lot of land. So, but if you were the the you know fifth daughter, maybe you had an acre of forest, and that's about it. 
So, um, you know, so then you would be sent off to to become a nun, and that acre of forest would become the property of 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 the abbey. So, it was it was really very much an economic arrangement. It, it often had nothing to do with religious vocation. When her parents first meet with Abbot Kuno, um, her mother surprises everyone by speaking up on Hildegard's behalf. Um, surprises everyone because she's a woman. She's not supposed to have an opinion. Um, what does she want for her daughter, and why does she want it? Uh, well, so, so Hildegard's mother, Mechtild, um, is aware of, of the special gift of intellect that her daughter has, um, and, you know, and of her temperament and her open spirit, as I guess any mother would. So, so she negotiates um, a special arrangement with the abbot that would allow Hildegard to wait until... It, the final uh, to take her final vows until she's 18 years old. Um, under under canon law and the rule of Saint Benedict, uh, one could take the final vows at 16 years old. In in some cases, special cases, even earlier. But but her mother wants to make sure that Hildegard is not forced to do it until she is. Well, forced is not the right word, but she's not uh, expected to do it until she is. Old, you know, older and or more and more mature. She's trying to protect her in, in that way, um, in case Hildegard finds the monastic life um, unappealing. Um, and so it's, but it's, you know, it's important to stress that in the Middle Ages, one could, or just as, as I guess, as, as much as today, one could not be forced to enter the monastic life, even if, if um, as in Hildegard's case. She was kind of destined for it, and by the order of her birth, she still had to do it of her own volition. So, um, so her mother, um, you know, wants to give her that time to 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 make that decision, you know, to 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 take the final vows. And you know, it, it is the mother, not the father. It's it's kind of a, you know, it, it's an interesting dynamic, I guess. But um, that that's what that's what her mother was like, and perhaps that's where you know where Hildegard's um, own uh, sort of independence and, and determination comes from. Well, her mother probably spent a lot more time with her as well. I mean, she would probably know her a lot better than the father would in those days. That's that's quite possible. But you know, if we if we look at how Hildegard's life evolved, what a what a fighter she was, really, and and and, and believer. Um, in one, what she wanted to do. I mean, there, it, it, she must have, you know, taken after someone. <laughs> right. So tell us about that. Tell us what she's like as a person, even at this early age. Uh, so she's very, as I said, she's very uh, bright, very precocious. Uh, she wants to study. She's she's not interested in in sort of the the the, the things that girls are traditionally uh, encouraged to be interested in, which is pretty much embroidery. And, and and making small talk, and um, and she you know she she's, she just has a very open open spirit. She's a she she um, she's a great lover of nature. I mean, at the age of ten or eleven, this is not yet very pronounced. But as she grows older, that that that's, that becomes a very very much a central kind of part of her philosophy, um, and. You know, anybody who's a lover of nature has to be an open, you know, a person who is open-spirited, who wants, you know, has this expansive view of the world, which is something that really clashes with the life that she is destined for, and that's kind of one of the main conflicts in in the greenest branch is 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 her her temperament, her openness, and her love of nature, and at the same time the 
the, 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 her, um, you know, the life that she 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 lived, which is you know by by definition very limited and very very enclosed. Very literally enclosed, yes. Yeah. So tell us. Yeah. I mean that that is part of. Um... The background that I'd like to get to, um, talk a little bit about the convent of St. Isabod, uh, its place within the abbey, and in particular, it's, I think it's Magistra, you call her not an abbess, but um, Yuta is very much not one of these nuns who uh, was sent off without a vocation. I mean, she is very dedicated to her particular brand of religion. So talk to us about her as well and how that affects the life that Hildegard can look forward to or not look forward to in some cases. Right. So, so, so the, the Hildegard discovers very quickly that the women of St. Desibod live in virtual seclusion as, as anchorites or anchoresses, which is the female uh, version. Um, that means that they do not leave the premises of the convent. They don't speak with anyone from the outside. They have their food delivered and their refuse taken away by, by abbey servants. That's the extent of the, their interaction with the outside world. Um, again, that, that's, that's, the, the, that's the essence of anchorite monasticism as opposed to the cenobitic monasticism, which is community-based monasticism. Um, and um, and this is you know this is something that is definitely very much um, against Hildegard's nature and inclinations. But Jutta von Sponheim, the founder, the foundress of the of the convent, as you mentioned, is a very devout, very pious uh, woman um, who you know is prone to asceticism, has a reputation for being an ascetic, and in in the way in my telling of the story, she. Um, she actually engages in, in mortification of the flesh. Uh, she uses a, a, a scourge to whip herself. Um, so, and this is something that Hildegard very much disapproves of, um, because, um, like I, I said, she she is a lover of nature, and she she considers hurting one's body, uh, even for a religious purpose, to be a, a sin against nature. So that's one of the points of conflict between these two women. Uh, of course, it's not all conflict. The relationship is, like, relationship is, is very complex because Yuta also becomes a mentor to Hildegard in other ways. She teaches her the Bible, the, the, the role of St. Benedict, the, um, uh, some basic Latin. So she, she, in a way, she fills that gap that Hildegard um, experiences because she's not allowed to study in the monastic school because she's a girl. So, um, so that so that mentorship is important for Hildegard, but 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 the the, the, the religious philosophy that Utah subscribes to the the, the 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 extreme asceticism, the the constant fasting, the mortification of the flesh is is something that Hildegard never accepts and never approves of. And who is Utah uh, herself? I mean, how did she end up in this convent? So Utah was a, a a young woman with a, a very deep religious vocation, and she she found she she founded that convent. Um, she come she came from a, a quite a prominent uh, aristocratic family in the Rhineland, the, the Sponheim family, and she told her father at an early age. Well, she was older than Hildegard; she was around sixteen or eighteen. Again, forces uh, are you know not very clear on on a lot of dates. Because you know this happened 900 years ago, 
but um but you know she told her father that she wanted to found a convent and and her father being a you know a wealthy aristocrat um you know gave her the funds and but but because of her ascetic inclinations she w- she wasn't one of those noble women who founded a uh, you know a um uh you know a, a, a sort of a, a large powerful uh, you know abbey um but she founded this little anchorite cell that was attached to the abbey of St. Dizibod where she wanted to live basically as a recluse with just a few other women um so that that's that just her that was just her preference for for the way that she wanted to uh fulfill her religious vocation so Hildegard does make uh, other friends within the abbey and at this point I'm not sure which of the characters, I mean, Hildegard and Jutta are, and probably the abbot, abbot are all historical characters, but I'm not sure whether Volmar is. Um, but he is an important, how should we put this, counteractant to Jutta, maybe. <laughs> Tell us about him. So Volmar is, is actually a real person, was a real person. Um, a very interesting and, and somewhat mysterious figure. Um, in in Hildegard's life, um, they they met very early on. This was a, a co-ed type of community. So the abbey was a, a male monastery, and the the the, the convent of Saint Dizzy, but the women's convent, the anchorite convent, was was set up within that as a subsidiary house. So they were under the overall authority of the abbot. There was no abbess. I mean, Utah would have been that, but she. The, the nature of the of the anchorite nature of that convent really did not allow her, nor did she want to be an abbess. She just wanted to be the leader of this of this cells of of recluse women. Um, but but so but there were both men and women living, and and Hildegard certainly would have encountered men and and, and male novices, and one of them was uh, was uh, Volmar, and so they basically kind of came of age together and um for most of, of Hildegard's life later life after she you know gained prominence and became a, a, a respected not just a physician but a writer and composer he served as her secretary essentially he would transcribe her writings he would take dictations from her he would uh correct her latin syntax because we have to remember Hildegard had really no formal education whereas Volmar would have gone through the monastic school and you know, ha- would have had a very firm grasp of, of Latin. And so he basically served as her secretary, her, her editor also, we, we might even say in, you know, in today's modern terms. So what is clear is that they, they were very close collaborators and um, they, they were you know, bound by a, by a bond of mutual uh, respect. Um, now there is absolutely no evidence historically that there was any kind of love affair between them um or some kind of in- romantic involvement but it's interesting that Hildegard um referred to or she she referred to him several times in her writings and in one one such reference she she calls him somewhat cryptically um a man whom i had sought and found now <laughs> what she means by that uh, who knows? But it certainly kind of, op- you know, opens the doors to interpretations, at least from people like me who write fiction. So, 
in in the greenest branch, I, I, I tried to toe a certain line, you know, when I when I describe their relationship, uh, you know, in, a, in the broad sense of the word. But the way that, that I I do that is my own invention, it, you know, it's my own take on it, not a historical fact. So I can't let you go without asking about Brother Wigbert and his role as Hildegard's mentor. Um, and because this is in some way a central element that sets her apart uh, from other nuns. Can you tell us what his role is in the Abbey and about his relationship with uh, Hildegard? Yeah, so so Brother Wigbert is the um, the Abbey physician who runs the infirmary. And um, after a certain period of time in, in the Anchorite convent, Hildegard grows, becomes melancholy. We would say today she becomes depressed because of, of her new life. Um, and and so she becomes ill. And she's taken to the um, to the infirmary and where Brother Wigbert um, cares for her. And he very soon discovers her intelligence, her talent, you know, her interest in medicine um, as well, and he is in need of um, of an assistant, and he asks the abbot uh, to uh, give him permission to take her on as his assistant, and the abbot agrees. Um, and so that, that becomes kind of Hildegard's quote-unquote big break. Uh, that's when she is, a new arrangement is set up for her, whereby she is still part of the convent, but she spends... Um, some of her time at the infirmary and the the herbal workshop, helping Brother Wigbert uh, learning about medicine, and and this is essentially what sets her up for uh, for later becoming Germany's first female physician. So so Brother Wigbert is is a, is a mentor, um, a very pivotal, consequential figure in her life. Someone whose whose backing and trust um, allows Hildegard to. Um, to 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 not just to learn, uh, you know the the, the craft of, of 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 you know the medical arts as they referred to them back then, but also to to, to you know to become who she wants to be. So um, you know in in a way, I mean she, she encounters all sorts of people at at the abbey, um, both men and women, um, some of whom are um, become very helpful for her and, and push her along that path. And some others, like Prior Hellinger, who become her antagonists and and who uh, want to do everything uh, in their power to send her permanently back to the convent out of the infirmary. And, and so, you know, that struggle constantly to, to, um, to remain in her place is also a very... Um, very important part of the, of the story told in this book, um, but you know it, it's it's a it's a very complex environment. Who would who would have thought that a medieval monastery could be so complicated? Well, it has people. You put three people in a room, you've already got complications. But yeah. yes, I'm glad you mentioned Prior Hellinger. I was going to at least mention him in passing because I didn't want to leave readers with the impression that everything was sunny um, for Hildegard. She does have lots right. of. Um, 
obstacles to overcome, uh, many of them simply because she's a woman uh, operating in a man's world. Uh, she, the story continues, um, as you noted uh, while we were talking before the interview. This is the, the next book is not really a sequel so much as just a continuation of the story. And you're expecting it out in January. Uh, it's called The Column of Burning Spices. Can you tell us anything about what to expect there without giving away too many plot points? Sure. So, so it basically picks up um, it, it, where the, the, the greenest branch left leaves off in in, um, in the basically middle part of Hildegard's life when she finally <clears throat> her reputation as a physician as a writer is strong enough that she decides uh, to to uh, leave the Abbey of Saint Desibod, relocate the convent, and uh, start her own foundation that would um, allow her to, to live and work and practice medicine the, the way that she wants without interference from the monks. Um, but of course, the monks don't want that because her reputation is a source of prestige and, and therefore wealth from, you know, uh, for them. So, um, so that becomes a real struggle and the, 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 the confrontation that, that Ensues when Hildegard makes that decision is this is is basically what book two, the column of burning spices, starts with, and and the story is about her quest for for the, that independence and for living on her own terms. And what would you like readers to take away from the greenest branch? Well, first of all, I would like the readers to know what a what an amazing and fearless woman uh, Hildegard was. What a fighter for what she believed and for what she wanted her life to be. Um, so, in that sense, you know, she, as I mentioned at the beginning, she's she's a very inspirational uh, person, not just for women, but for anyone who wants to live on their own terms, who wants to chart their own course in life, as opposed to, um, you know, following uh, something or. Expectations that others may may have set for them, uh, but um, I think it also shows the story more broadly. Shows that women's uh, struggles over the centuries have not really been that different. Um, for Hildegard, you know, a lot of it is is the family versus career dilemma. Um, you know, the, the way in my in my telling of the story, one of the main reasons she becomes a nun is because that is the only way for a woman to um, to have a uh, to gain relative independence and to to learn and and, and pursue activities of of the intellect. Uh, now, I'm not trying to say that women's lives today are as difficult as they were in the Middle Ages. Certainly not, but I I, I do believe that many women can recognize something of in Hildegard's struggles that they may have experienced in their own lives or are still experiencing in their own lives. So it is a, it's really a universal story. Yes, I agree it is. I mean, as you say, the details change, but the underlying questions about who comes first, yourself or your family, um, they're still with us. Definitely. So usually at this point, I ask what my guest is working on now, but I happen to know that your next project involves King Sigismund I the Old of Poland and his Italian wife, Bona Sforza, uh, who also happened to appear in my own next novel, Song of the Siren. So I would really like to hear what you're doing with them. Definitely. I just finished a draft of a historical uh, murder mystery 
that's set at the court of uh, the the royal court of uh, in Poland in Krakow at uh, in the early 16th century under the rule of King Sigismund and Bonaforza. They're not involved in the murders, but they're sort of the historical characters that are that form the the the, the background um, of the story and. Um, now, I'm very excited about it. Um, this is the first time I've really moved towards uh, uh, this kind of uh, this genre, the subgenre of historical fiction. I, I would, I would say that the greenest branch is, is more on the literary side of historical fiction, but this is this is very different. Um, it is a very, as I'm sure you know and your readers know, it's a very popular period in in historical fiction, the 16th, 16th century, 1500s, but um, but it tends to focus on uh, Western Europe, you know, on, on England and, and, and France predominantly. But, um, you know, it, there isn't as much written in English um, about Eastern Europe. Hardly you know, anything. Right. I mean, I know of your books, but um, I can maybe mention one or two other authors, but that's about it. So, so I'm very excited to to be able to bring to English-speaking audiences uh, this this other part of Europe that's often forgotten, and I want to show that it was every bit as, you know, complex and and vibrant and and just fascinating and and treacherous as as Tudor England. <laughs> so we'll see how I do that, but um, that's my goal. Who was murdered, and who are your characters? So the the so Bonasforza arrives in in Krakow in in 1518 with her entourage, including ladies in waiting, and um, the the story starts at Christmas of 1519. Um, so very early on in in, in Bona's, um reign as Queen of Poland, and during the Christmas feast of in 2019, one of the uh, courtiers, middle-ranking courtier, is murdered in the castle, his body is found. And um, and then the, an investigation begins and different theories are floating around and then a few days later another courtier is murdered. Um, and so the investigation kind of stalls after that and one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting um, launches her own investigation and what she discovers is this, uh, this story of... of, um, of of abuse and vengeance that that may threaten the, the the safety of the queen herself. So that's kind of the the the, the broad stroke um, kind of arc of the story. That sounds great. Uh, I really look forward to it. What's your schedule for these novels? Do you know when the first one will come will come out? So so I finished the, the first draft, and um, but right now I'm focusing on getting the uh, column of burning spices. Um, released in January, and then after that I will be querying agents with the manuscript of Silent Water, um, and and then we'll see. You know, I, I will definitely uh, see it published, whether traditionally or on, or on Amazon, and it, so if it happens on Amazon, it may be out as early as next summer. Um, if it's you know if it's if I go the traditional route, it might be longer than that. But you know, it, Silent Water will definitely be published. <laughs> and then you'll come back and talk to me again. I hope. If you invite me, definitely. And I actually I have ideas for sequels as well. So this will be this is this is going to be a, a lengthy project. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, PK. 
Thanks, Carolyn. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with P.K. Adams about the Greenest Branch. Find out more about her at http colon slash slash pkadams-author.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network. Thank you.